0: reading from the fourth book, Against Marcion by the Christian writer Tertullian, 208 A.D. From heaven straight down to the synagogue. As the saying goes, the business that we're here to do, let's get to it at once. That was a reading from Against Marcion, the major second-century heretic. I like to pronounce his name the old-fashioned way because it's a reminder of its meaning, which is Little Mark. I think there's a mystery associated with this name. And someday, even on this show, we might figure it out. You know, some people pronounce his name Martian. Years ago, I was listening to Catholic Answers, and they pronounced it that way. And one of the hosts said, like, well, it makes sense that that would be his name because uh, his beliefs were so weird, like a Martian. Honestly, I didn't find that joke to be very funny. Or put it this way, I don't think it was as funny as the host thought it was. Now, here in this reading, Tertullian was making fun of Marcion. Th- there was a shorter, variant version of the Gospel of Luke that the Marcionite church used in his time. And Tertullian, like unfortunately so many people today, assumed that Marcion was like the author editor of that Gospel. And he assumed that he, as author editor, deleted and changed passages that he didn't like in the circumcised little Gospel. As another Christian writer said. And this gospel started out with Jesus exercising a demon in the synagogue at Capernaum. You know, in the gospel of Luke, he's at least born and goes through childhood first before doing any of that. But the the Marcionite gospel began the story at Capernaum. It's sometimes said, and I think Tertullian was the one who started this trend, that the Marcionite gospel actually had Jesus floating or flying down to Capernaum, you know, like from heaven. But there's no real suggestion of that here. It's, it's mostly the same as the wording in the Gospel of Luke in the corresponding section where he, quote, comes down to Capernaum from someplace else, uh, in this case Nazareth, in a story which a later editor of Luke invented and which Marcion's Gospel lacked. Uh, I think the work of Jason Bedun has shown that the Marcionite Gospel at least started out as an early text variant of Luke, and, but that's an entirely different discussion Because the purpose of this reading was simply to say that, this being part two of a two-part episode, we're just going to get right to it, just like the proverb that Tertullian cited. You're listening to Born in the Second Century, and the date is now March 22nd, 2021, and this is episode six of the monthly episodic telebroadcast. I'm your host, Chris Palmero. And the music for today's broadcast was provided by the recording group Pompey Gray. You can listen to the musical compositions featured in this telebroadcast by searching Pompeii Gray in SoundCloud as P-O-M-P-E-I-I-G-R-A-Y, two words. And now for a bit of sophistry from your host. Those who disagree with the radical views of myself and others often compare us to the so-called creationists in the creation versus evolution controversy. But in the controversy over Christian origins, we are actually found to be the evolutionist in that, you know, our view is that Christianity developed organically out of the melange of beliefs in the thought world of the ancient Mediterranean. You know, it's those who hold to the conventional view who are found to be the creationist. You know, they imagine that the death of an anonymous Galilean was a kind of collapsing star setting off a supernova throughout the religious world of the Eastern Empire in the first century, such that, not even 20 years later, a follower of his could make a statement like this, quote, If by the trespass of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God, and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. The gift is not as through one who sinned, for the judgment came by one to condemnation, but the free gift came of many trespasses to justification. End quote. That was a productive 20 years. I mean, that's a fairly complex argument. And they managed to get to something like that, all while managing to deal with actually growing and expanding and building out the religion, dealing with internal power struggles, dealing with external pressures in every locality, and still managing to develop those complex beliefs. Now, that, that quote was from Romans chapter 5, by the way. And uh, I would like to thank uh, Dan Carlin for uh, always reading the Bible passages on this program. In the future, we'll have occasion to mention modern religious movements um, like the ghost dance or the two by twos or even like the branch Davidians, where even if a religion burst onto the scene very suddenly, on a closer look, it's found to have had a very lengthy period of development and emerges out of the Melange. You know, apologists are fond of saying that, well, Christianity did actually emerge out of its first century thought world, but you know, the essential ingredient was the Christ event or the Easter faith or the experience of the risen Jesus. But this is just like saying that the religion was formed by flipping a switch. Like you go from a Judaism in which these spiritual Messiah and apocalyptic judgment ideas are kind of vaguely bubbling under the surface, not in any kind of coherent fashion, certainly not in any systematic fashion, to a Christianity in which these elements are suddenly brought sharply into focus, fully systematized within like a 10-year period between 35 and 45 A.D., and all based on an event that doesn't register on the radar of the Roman or even Jewish historians from the region. That, by the way, is why the mainstream scholars appreciate the Dead Sea Scrolls so much, because they're like, thank God, you know, Judaism was a lot more eclectic in the first century than we had realized. So now the sudden explosion of Christianity starts looking a lot more plausible. But I mean, I don't know. Uh, the Dead Sea sect was still heavily focused on temple worship. Christianity decidedly was not. So I think this is a dead end in many ways. But this whole problem could instantly be solved if the origins of Christianity were seen as part of a steady development out of the Jewish gnosis and the apocalyptic and the diaspora wisdom literature, the philonic allegorical speculation. And the missing ingredient was not the Christ event, but the beginning of the diffusion of these ideas by charismatic prophets that could synthesize and articulate these concepts and spread them around. And by charismatic, I don't mean captivating, but essentially people who babbled in a trance-like state. When that all began to happen, that's when you had the true early beginnings of Christianity. We're going to do a reading from the Odes of Solomon soon, and it will show that in the Jewish Gnostic communities of the first century, a sort of missionary impulse was growing. The idea that they needed to take what they were learning from these visions these heavenly contacts with God and with the Logos, that it was time to spread these abroad, spread this good news, as it were, to fellow Jews who, in their opinion, might have been too focused on the literal word of Torah, but also to spread it maybe even to pagans, because why not? I mean, isn't God the God of everyone? So that'll be an important reading. But for now, we immediately recommence our discussion of the Epistle of Barnabas, a document from 130 A.D., a polemic of sorts against the mother religion of Christianity, or at least it would be if the author were less confused by his source material. The Jesus of this author and his community is the preexistent son of God who is only recently being reimagined in a retrospective legend as an earthly preacher who had lived in Judea in the semi-recent past. In the last episode, we covered the authorship, the thought background, the intention of the letter, and we summarized its contents. And now we're going to complete our introduction. As we continue down the main path of the New Testament journey, we'll need to stop here and there and cover some extra canonical text and texts that are more traditionally dated to the second century. And in doing so, especially with this letter, we often find that, you know, as undeveloped as the New Testament conception of Jesus appears to be, and forget even about Paul's letters for a second, I mean the conception of Jesus as it is in the Gospels. You know, oftentimes the documents that everyone has always placed in the second century really aren't too far developed beyond those gospel conceptions of Jesus. Like here, for example, a good case can be made that Jesus, as seen by Barnabas, is not too radically different from the Jesus of the letter to the Hebrews. And that realization is going to open up a lot of new horizons. So that's why we want to cover these paracanonical writings. What we hope to demonstrate today is that this depiction of Jesus by the author as the preexistent Son of God is in fact closer to What what was the community's original belief? And these ideas about Jesus being an earthly preacher in the past are novelties, innovations that they're just now beginning to incorporate. At a minimum, we do not find any support for the where's Waldo version of Jesus that's the conventional view today, that he just blended completely into the background of first century Judea. That's why he left such little impact on the sources outside of these obviously legendary narratives that all depend on the same two texts. The more you read in the Christian documents about how these Enochic Messiah attributes or these traits of preexistence are being applied to Jesus with this kind of easy comfort, so much comfort in fact that the author of this letter in particular seems to see this view of Jesus as self-evident, the more you see that, the more difficult it is to explain how and why these traits are supposed to have been applied over time to the marginal crucified zealot. In this episode, I'm going to give a sort of potted biography of Jesus based only on facts that Barnabas gives us, and it'll show that the vast majority of the details about him and about the apostles go back not to oral or written tradition, as if those two things are even reliable in and of themselves, but to the Old Testament and to proof text based on it. And as always, we're going to cover the date of this letter in every way we can. As I mentioned last time, we're actually following the consensus today when it comes to the dating. Now on the biography, some might say, and this is an objection I would probably make if I were arguing the conventional view, I would say that, you know, Barnabas isn't trying to do a bio of Jesus. He's, he's, he's really just trying to expostulate on a theological point. But my response to that would be that in so doing, he's not approaching his argument in any way that we might expect someone who held a belief in an earthly Jesus to do. Not to anticipate it too much here, but he's arguing against those who say that a heavenly being cannot be said to take on flesh. It's like a rarefied academic argument that you would think if his opponents had read the Gospels, they would have a hell of a lot more problems with the Jesus character than just this first-order logic thing. I mean, imagine if they read the Gospel of Mark. Like, when they get to the end, they'd be like Gareth Keenan flipping over his notepad. Like, okay, some questions here. As we go forward, we should consider the primitive nature of this document and what that implies about the development of Christianity. 130 A.D., we have no bishops, no presbyters, no deacons, no Eucharist. No identifiably formalized church leadership at all. The idea of the Holy Spirit not really fleshed out. Jesus hasn't yet been pulled completely down to earth. And yet again, we're reading a book where the author's shouting at rival teachers and trying to counter rival beliefs, rival sectarians. Does it make sense that such a late document should still be giving us such a primitive view of this religion? Back after this. So the early church being made up of rival groups that were stitched together, some New Testament books actually preserve a memory of early Christian sectarians that disagreed with or downright hated the idea of the way Jesus was depicted in the Gospels. Second Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made Jesus known to you. But then as an example of the kind of story we should believe in instead, he cites something from the Apocalypse of Peter, which... Not sure what he's trying to tell us about the apocalypse of Peter there. I mean, does he consider that a non-cleverly devised tale and therefore it's okay to cite? First um, Timothy says, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which only give rise to useless speculation. Useless speculation, that phrase ought to go on uh, Barnabas' family crest. Christian writers like Minucius Felix from the 160s or the 170s seem to dismiss the gospel version of Jesus. Like they treat it like a slur that someone's raising against Christianity. Like you worship some guy who putzed around and got crucified by the Romans. And they're like, no, I mean, we worship the son of God. We worship the divine logos who took on flesh. But it was in this mystical speculative sense or at any rate, it's in a sense that we can't fully articulate or don't want to. And the letter of Barnabas is among this type of document the type that approaches Jesus from a much different perspective than the gospel accounts. But as we'll see, it was written at a time or in a place where that was just starting to change. So let's do the promised bio of Jesus using only the info that we get from this author. And I'm going to show you just how much of it derives from sources other than oral tradition or other than the gospels, how almost all of it comes from the Jewish scriptures and crucially for born in the second century. That also applies to the info that he gives us about the apostles as well. Now, some would argue that he exclusively uses proofs from the Jewish scriptures because he's marshaling them for this specific theological argument. But as I said before we went to break, he is not thereby defending the picture of the earthly career of Jesus that's familiar to us from the Gospels, but the very notion of the God taking on flesh at all. Like, that's enough of a sticking point for his opponents, apparently, and, and still less does he defend the proposition we would expect him to, which is that not only did the God take on flesh, but that this specific man is the object of salvation which was the view that the Christian preachers were actually made to articulate by the author of Acts. Now, before I do any of that, I want to talk about the concept of the historical Jesus that is more and more fashionable today among the non-Christian public, which is the minimal historical Jesus, like I talked about in episode one. And this is a view that assumes that the Gospels are mostly fictional, but have some historical core. And that's a phrase that's used all the time, historical core. First of all, that there even has to be a historical core is an assumption. I mean, is there a historical core to the Wizard of Oz? I mean, some people in the past have thought that that was about the free silver movement, you know, even at the time it was written. But like, what is the historical core of the story in which Jesus has Peter go beat up a fish to steal money out of its mouth so they can can go pay the didrachma? Actually, you know what? I, I just thought of what the historical core of that story could be just now when bringing it up. It, it could be that the historical Jesus robbed the fish or or probably the disciples caught him like strangling a fish, kind of like Johnny Depp and the man from La Mancha. And, and were just like, what are you doing? And then he told them that like, no, God placed an Antiochene didrachma in this fish's mouth. And I'm just getting it out to, you know, I, I guess I, I cut it in half so that, you know, he could pay the temple tax with a half shekel and like use the other half for a Lucy or something. But then obviously later Christians were embarrassed by this story. So they made it into one where where Peter was the one who strangled the fish to get the coin. I actually kind of like this way of analyzing the Gospels. It's kind of like a brain teaser. But I I want to point out here, though, that, that born in the second century is not like some logic bro proposition. We're much more concerned with finding out the actual history behind these stories. And as a historical record, this coin in the fish's mouth thing is total nonsense. But in its context in history, as a literary composition it ends up being one of the more powerful sections in the New Testament. And what it reflects is Syrian Christians of the 120s AD realizing that they may have gone too far in their opposition to official Judaism and maybe starting to regret that fact. Like they didn't want to be kicked out of their family, um, so to speak. Um, So there's that tone of sadness and regret. And the author knew that if Jesus was knocking about at the time of Pilate, then the temple would have still been standing. And so he recast his community's issue as one that Jesus had dealt with. And he has Jesus being asked whether it's appropriate to pay the temple tax, or maybe Matthew was even, even thinking about the Fiscus Judaicus. But the real question is, to what extent should we even consider ourselves Jews anymore? Like, is this over? Has this bond been irrevocably broken? And the answer of Jesus amounts to, well, we are right on paper, but we can also use to pull it back a bit. So go ahead and pay the tax, you know, so as not to offend them. And now the coin being in the fish's mouth was really just a literary device to get the author out of a tight spot. Like he can't very well have Jesus pull out a bad credit card. And the, and the other problem is, you know, this being a folk story told to ancient people that involves money, these ancient audiences are going to want to know where'd he get the money. It's like the author knew that if he didn't explain how they paid the tax, then like 50 hands would immediately go up whenever they got done telling this story. But But let's do another Bible story from this historical core perspective. Like I said, it's kind of fun. Uh, a woman dumps a jar of oil on Jesus's head in Bethany in the Gospel of Mark. It's a tricky one. Um, now, the great form critic, Rudolf Boltmann, who declared that actually many of the stories and sayings in the Gospels didn't go back to a historical Jesus, he actually believed that this one was entirely historical or as he called it, biographical. Uh, but see, we're modern scholars, right? And, th- and this German fellow from the 1920s or whatever, he's just outdated. It's outdated scholarship. You know, because a woman pouring oil on Jesus's head, anointing him for burial, uh, that assumes that both she and Jesus are anticipating the crucifixion in advance. So that's like a supernatural element. So this story puts us in quite a bind. Now, it would be real easy to say that the whole damn story is just made up, like just like 90% of the Septuagint stories are made up. But see, that's hyper skepticism and that's bad. That's not scholarly. We got to find the historical core. So maybe the historical core of this story was that, the historical Jesus was like a youth soccer coach in his spare time. Like, there's nothing inherently implausible about that. Instead of a woman dumping oil on his head, what happened was his team won the game and they poured the cooler of Hellenistic Powerade over his head, right? And then later he was crucified. And then, you know, something happened that was like the entire source of the Christian belief system, which is like the one precise thing that no one can ever actually explain. And then you see later... When they were looking back on the life of Jesus, they had an oral tradition about fluid being dumped on his head. And so like the oral tradition of that power aid story was restructured into a theological framework by the early church. And it became to be about a, a pre-burial anointing by a pious woman in Bethany. Now that's how you do scholarship, right? And, and yeah, I mean, lest, lest I be accused of setting up straw men, the examples that are really used oftentimes are, are not so egregious as those. But they're in the same kind of category because imagination has to end up doing a lot of the work. And I, I myself, by the way, was not disparaging Rudolf Boltmann back there. That, that was my hypothetical opponent doing that. B- but the assumption of a historical core in the Gospels is a truly modern phenomenon. And the assumption is that we know certain facts about Jesus. He was a guy that was baptized. Because why would the early Christians write about their hero being baptized by some other guy? He was crucified because why would they make that up? Um, Why was he crucified? Well, probably something about entering the temple with malintent because uh, the temple story just seems weird the way it is, almost like someone changed it for apologetic reasons. Um, He also had a brother because it's mentioned in this unprovenanced, undateable, and obviously late and highly tendentious document. I mean, this is fuzzy thinking. There are three things you have to know, and these are things that are demonstrable. One, all of the traits later applied to Jesus existed already within Judaism and Gnosticism. Two, the earliest sources outside of the New Testament appear not to have an unbroken line of continuity from what the New Testament depicts as the beginning of Christianity and the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And that includes Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias, Justin, Barnabas, the Didache, uh, First Clement, Second Clement, the Shepherd of Hermas. There appears to have been some massive breach at some point between the so-called Apostolic Age and the mid-2nd century. It's like someone blew up a suspension bridge so that like the towers are still standing, but there's a huge gap right in the middle of the deck, you know, kind of like in the I Am Legend. The traditions and the links that these mid-second century documents try to establish with the New Testament constitute very visible guesswork. And on this show, we demonstrate it again and again. You know, Think back to the discussion of Papias in the Mark episode, the tradition of who wrote Mark's gospel, right? Now, the third thing you need to know In 25 of the 27 New Testament documents, the writer is found to be targeting some opposing Christian group that he vehemently disagrees with, often many times in the same document, sometimes multiple groups in the same document. And given the fact that the theology and the narratives of the New Testament documents often conflict with one another, and oftentimes what one writer is criticizing we see reflected in the documents of another writer— We can therefore posit that Christianity, as it emerged in the second century, was a synthesis of previously hostile sects. And we know how they were synthesized. Walter Bauer did a complete study of it. They were synthesized through literature, through forgeries like the pastoral letters, through myths about apostolic succession, through things like paying a salary to church leaders having episcopal succession, through strategic alliances like the Church of Rome associating itself with Corinth and North Africa and later with the churches of Western Turkey. And above all, even in a late document like Barnabas, that even many conservative Christians have agreed is late, around 1.30, we still see that the traditions in the background of Jesus are very far from being based on something like reliable oral tradition or historical fact. But what we can enthusiastically state is that whenever these later Christian documents discuss an earthly Jesus, if they discuss an earthly Jesus, which Barnabas barely does, they never provide support for anything like the minimal, historical, backwoods preacher, Galilean gadfly, obscure crucified zealot, you know, Passover plot, just a guy who was baptized by John and did faith healings and had a brother named James. To the extent that they ever do bring in an earthly Jesus, it's always the same routine like they're reciting from off of a checklist. And for all we know, they were reciting off a checklist. Jesus did signs and wonders. All Israel witnessed him because he needed to give them the chance to repent. He was executed in monumental fashion in front of all the Jewish leaders, all the Roman leaders, and even the forged passage of Josephus shows the template for this. It contains all of those elements. The idea that Jesus was just an obscure person is just not supported by any of these documents. And you know what it's like? It's like how in the early 20th century, archaeologists were starting to show that, hey, we've been digging in Palestine and the Sinai and Egypt for decades now, and we're just not turning up a lot of evidence for these Old Testament stories. You know, it's like, sorry, guys, uh... We can't find much evidence of any kind of vast kingdom of David or Solomon, at least until the Tell Dan inscription. Um, we can't find evidence of the first temple to this day. And you know what the religious historians did? Uh, they deployed their maybes and perhapses and their surelies and their no doubts. And they started to say, well, maybe Moses was like a small-time chieftain of these transhuman settlers. And maybe David and Solomon were just petty kings. Or Abraham was like this prominent shepherd. And guess what? Those theories had their day. They passed like a storm. And the consensus today in Jewish scholarship is that most, if not all, of these Old Testament stories are literary constructs. And mainstream Jewish scholars do not bat an eyelash at saying, like, yeah, there's no physical evidence for any of this stuff. I mean, there's evidence for certain things, uh, later things. There's evidence for the reign of Hezekiah and things like that. But the Bible is not even purporting to give a dispassionate historical account. Like for that entire period of the book of Judges, the only evidence that we have is songs and poems the antiquity of the characters is sometimes shown from the construction of their names, but there's just as much tangible evidence for the kings of Gondor and Numenor and practically the same type of evidence. So we've been down this road of retreating into minimalism, and we've seen how it ends. In discussing the picture of Jesus that Barnabas gives us, I want to start with his overall theme. It's his insistence that, quote, Jesus is surely not a son of man, and that is the son of a human, but instead a son of God, but who was manifested in a type in flesh, quote. He will later say that the Christ is not the son of David. I now introduce a quote from the letters of Ignatius. I put these in the 170s where I think they belong. Conservatives put them at 115, liberals at about 140. Ignatius, quote, Jesus Christ who was of the seed of David according to the flesh being both the son of man and the son of God, end quote. And what did I say earlier about Christianity being the product of multiple sects that were combined into one? Now, as an aside, to me, Ignatius should clearly be much later than Barnabas based on the difference between these two quotes alone, let alone the myriad other issues with Ignatius, like his copious use of the term Christian, like I mentioned last time. Now, the Son of Man, uh, that phrase has a specific meaning that we'll talk about at some point, but for our purposes, we don't actually need to get into the mystical aspect of it here because both of these authors clearly mean it in the sense of Jesus either being human or not human, as the case may be. But but Barnabas sees Jesus as the son of God. He calls him that nine times. But as to whether Jesus was physically born and what the circumstances were of that birth, he not only tells us nothing, but what he does say more or less precludes any kind of normal birth, even to a virgin of whom Barnabas has no knowledge. Uh, Ignatius, however, does know about the virgin birth and his statements about the virgin, frankly, uh, verge on worship. Uh, She does not exist in the universe of Barnabas. Now Barnabas is said to quote the Gospel of Matthew when he says many are called but few are chosen. Now how likely is it that he actually had the Gospel of Matthew in front of him which actually speaks of a physical birth to a human mother and failed to mention that in any way, yet he mentioned this other like highly obscure incidental quote. You know even though he's basing his arguments on the Old Testament, he still doesn't use the famous passage of Isaiah 7:14, you know behold the virgin will conceive like Matthew does. And that is because the life of Jesus, to the author of Barnabas, to the members of his church, began with him being the pre-existent Son of God who existed before time with God in heaven. However, to the author of Barnabas, Jesus had some experience of a human or mortal life because he repeatedly emphasizes the fact that he took on flesh. But now I'm going to describe to you each instance talking about Jesus' supposed life in the flesh. He says, and... Every sentence here that I'm about to say is a separate line from a different part of the letter. He endured to deliver up his flesh to destruction. He said it was necessary for him to be manifested in flesh. The Son of God came in flesh. He was manifested and suffered in flesh. Hope on the one who is going to be manifested to you in flesh. He was going to be manifested in flesh and to be dwelling in us. Not a son of man, but a son of God, who was manifested in a type of flesh. Now, if you have a son or daughter, I ask you, is this how you would describe the circumstances of your child's birth? You know, at the gender reveal, did it say on the party favors that this child was going to manifest in a type of flesh or submit to take on flesh? When Paul's letters use the term manifest, they always mean it in the sense that we use it like the secrets were made manifest. And at one point he says that the life of Jesus was made manifest in our mortal flesh, which is like a completely different concept and a strictly poetic one. I think all would agree on that. Now, there is an ancient creed in First Timothy chapter 3, where this language about being manifested in flesh is also used about Jesus. And it also seems like a remnant of a past era, back to when Jesus didn't have an earthly biography. It says, quote, He was manifested in flesh, was pronounced righteous in spirit, was seen by messengers, was preached among nations— had faith put into him in the world, was taken up in glory, end quote. That's an ancient creed that the author added to the letter. It covers Jesus from beginning to end. Notice how there's no earthly birth or ministry. And notice how it says he was seen by messengers. Not that he put them on blast for waking him up because he was sleeping in the boat with his head on a cushion. You know, Not that he forced them to serve as busboys in the middle of a field twice. Not that he forced each of them to quit their jobs without giving the customary two weeks notice. This refers to a God being revealed to privileged recipients of the manifestation of him, that is, charismatic prophets. It comes from the very earliest days of Christianity. And this passage, by the way, is what I was alluding to back in episode 2, when I said that the author of the pastorals was reluctant to force the concept of a human Jesus onto the Pauline church that he and others were trying to take over. First John talks about the word of life being manifested, 1 Peter says that Jesus was chosen in advance before the foundation of the world and revealed or made manifest at the end of times. Earl Doherty says in the book, Jesus, neither God nor man, quote, To manifest or reveal is the predominant meaning of the Greek verb phanero. It means to bring to light, display, make known, to make evident to the senses or to mental perception things previously hidden or unknown. In a religious context, it refers to a God giving evidence of his presence or providing knowledge about himself, as in a religious experience. Occasionally, it will refer to a dramatic appearance, as in a post-resurrection manifestation of Jesus in the interpolated ending to the Gospel of Mark or his coming at the end time in Colossians and 1 Peter. It would be difficult to make this verb encompass the idea of incarnation and living a life. End quote. The letter to the Hebrews, the spiritual sister of Barnabas, says, he has manifested once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by his sacrifice. On this passage, uh, Richard Carrier says in On the Historicity of Jesus, quote, The verb here being a common term for divine revelations and manifestations, it actually means make known, make clear, reveal. End quote. Properly speaking, this is the language of a God descending to earth. And this is not language about a historical man who was born and lived on earth. And then after death, these mystical concepts were applied to him because here there's no apparent man on which to hang these concepts. On the hypothesis of a historical Jesus, or especially a minimally historical Jesus, a crucified man, obscure backwoods preacher, how does it take us nearly a hundred years to get to a point where the author of Barnabas is using this type of language, but without referencing actual details of his life? which would surely serve his argument much better than these airy Old Testament passages, you know, these nebulous proof texts. A further detail that we get about Jesus. He is Lord of the whole world. Barnabas doesn't go so far as to uh, equate Jesus with God directly, but, you know, good as. Is this something we could say about a historical man? Like, at a minimum, we should expect some further justification as to why these traits and these details should be applied to a historical man. You know That's, by the way, the exact same problem that we run into in Paul's letters and also in Hebrews. But in all three places, the authors seem to be approaching the problem from the completely opposite end that we should expect. Like, their big concern is that people won't buy that a godlike being would condescend to clothe himself with flesh, or as Paul says, the likeness of flesh. It is much more logical that the starting point was the godly being, and the fleshly aspect came second. And make no mistake, this letter of Barnabas is an effort to work out that problem in real time. So this is some real shit we're getting. He says five times that Jesus, quote, submitted to suffer in the flesh. In point of fact, it seems like he's arguing with adherents of Jewish Gnosticism or like left-wing Gnosticism, who are more inclined to see the Savior as a purely spiritual being. But without that flesh element, whether he took on flesh in the heavenly realm in some way, whether he did it before the beginning of time, or whether he did it in the distant past, or whether, like in Mark, he did it just 100 years ago in the time of Pilate, Without it, you don't have Christianity. The idea of Christianity is that the God had to suffer for our sakes. And effectively, Jesus Christ is actually a stand-in for God. It's only because the religion developed out of Jewish monotheism that God didn't suffer directly from the beginning, as he is in fact implied to do in many of these passages, not just here, but in the New Testament and other paracanonical writings. And Barnabas is going to convince us of that by beating us over the head with Old Testament references. He will convince us even if it short dicks every carpenter in Capernaum. The primary proof that he gives for Jesus submitting to suffer in the flesh is a passage from our old friend Isaiah, chapter 53. This chapter, in fact, this whole section of Isaiah, was actually written as a sort of pro-Persian propaganda at the time of Cyrus. And there's a not insignificant chance that these passages actually refer to Cyrus, the ones that we're going to read shortly. Now, in modern Judaism, uh, these passages about the promise of the restoration of the temple and of the exiles being able to come back from Babylon are still valid as reminders of God remembering his people. And so in theory, it should still be possible to read them in the sense in which they were originally intended. But when the early Christians got hold of them, to say nothing of modern Christians, you know, that original meaning didn't have any more significance for them. And they chose, along with other sectarians, to force a new meaning on them. Quote, He was wounded because of our lawless actions, And he was rendered helpless because of our sins. By his wounds we were healed. As a sheep to the slaughter he was led, and as a lamb he was silent before his shearer. You may recall that in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is silent at his trial when they bring the accusations before him. The author got that historical fact from this passage about the sheep being obediently led to the slaughter. We might do a little thought exercise here. Imagine the trial of Jesus, I mean, like, as it would have happened in history. Now, as far as we know, no followers of Jesus actually witnessed the trial, but maybe the record of the trial became known, perhaps when one of the Jewish priests maybe converted to Christianity later and then gave, like, an eyewitness testimony. I mean, it's not far-fetched if we're going by the logic of the Gospels because Luke and Acts portray some Pharisees as highly sympathetic to Christianity. Now, is it more likely given how many passages from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 correspond to specific events at Jesus' trial. Is it more likely that a Christian would have heard the eyewitness describing Jesus' silence at the trial and then say, hey, that's just like Isaiah 53, verse 7. Yeah, I get that they didn't have chapter numbers back then, but is that more likely? Or given everything that we know about literature and intertextuality, is it more likely that when Jesus is depicted as being silent at his trial, It was rather a literary reflection of this passage from Isaiah. My point is, if we're looking at a narrative that appears to have so many echoes of Old Testament passages that Barnabas is gleefully pointing out like a fool, uh, he's giving the kitty away, as they say in the American South, then it's much more reasonable to assume that the narrative was constructed out of the building blocks of those passages. But a major hint as to why Barnabas keeps talking about Jesus submitting to take on flesh or agreeing to be manifested in flesh is another piece of information he gives us about Jesus that we can now add to his biography. He is preexistent. Now, this pre-existence concept itself preexisted within Judaism, as we mentioned in episode one, with things like the personified wisdom, with the various heavenly figures that we see in Daniel, but especially the messianic figure in the book of Enoch, which Barnabas is, uh, is a big fan of Enoch, the theologian Larry Hurtado actually says that this idea of a preexistent heavenly being was somewhat of a motif in ancient Judaism. And we also see it in the writings of Philo, the idea of the Logos or the Word of God, which was an entity that was with God from the creation and performs almost princely functions on his behalf. And this concept gets applied to Jesus, and we see it in places like Paul's letters. We see it in Colossians, Hebrews, the Gospel of John. We see it in the Odes of Solomon, and we see it here. And it became kind of a required belief about Jesus. It would later lead to those debates over the Trinity that lasted hundreds of years. The belief that the Jesus being existed with God at the beginning of time. Just like Justin Martyr, the author of Barnabas, says in no uncertain terms that when God created the world and said those things like, let's make man in our own image and likeness, he was literally saying this to Jesus in heaven. It's kind of the same thing as we see in uh, Paradise Lost, now that I think about it. But this is a bedrock belief that Barnabas has about Jesus. And one of the reasons for this whole section where he has to prove from the Old Testament why such a being would take on flesh, he's trying to promote this idea to people who didn't believe in it. And like I said, what his opponents believed was not that Jesus wasn't a preexistent being. They believed in the pre-existence part already. They had a more classically Gnostic belief system. They saw the heavenly Savior as solely a divine being who performed his saving act in heaven, or even from the beginning of time, and it's only being revealed to us now. And that is also the belief of Paul's letters. But what Barnabas is trying to get across is the important additional fact that also this being in some way submitted to take on flesh. And that fact is important to him because in his mind, or at least in the mind of the authors that he's cribbing from, we ourselves could not be saved unless the God took on a mortal body just like us. And that's why the author seems to be trying to convince people that Jesus had to come in the flesh, as if this was not the original belief. Like he sounds plaintive, like he's testily answering objections. Like in chapter 5, he has to deal with a very obvious objection to the new view of Jesus, which is, you know, if this is the Son of God and Lord of all the world that God spoke to at the beginning of the creation, then how on earth can we imagine him suffering at the hands of humans? And it, it seems very clear that the belief in the Savior who resides in heaven only was the original belief but that was over time deemed too speculative, too remote. It doesn't speak to human experiences. There were stories and myths in the Greek, Egyptian, Persian worlds about gods experiencing immortality, if only temporarily, and this kind of thing seems to have an innate appeal to humans in general. Even today, I would say it's the main reason that Christianity remains viable. The idea that Jesus' saving act is validated by the fact that he shared our mortal experience this community of Barnabas developed out of the Christianity that was closer to ancient Gnosticism where the Savior was this remote redeemer. Through cross-pollination, they're now encountering those versions of early Christianity that much more heavily emphasized the humanity and suffering that this Christ figure had to endure, was required to endure in order for the religion to make sense. The author is introducing this concept to his audience and kind of giving them talking points on why it makes sense. Now lastly, if a heavenly being takes on flesh... One might ask, you know, how can that mean anything other than appearing on earth? Well, as we'll see when we cover ancient Gnostic documents like the Nascene basic preaching or the paraphrase of Shem, uh, the original idea underlying all of this was that we live in the world of matter. The world above is pure spirit. We have a spark of that spirit within us. It wants to reunite with the spiritual realm. And the myth of the redeeming savior was originally in its most ancient form, nothing more than the idea that a purely spiritual being would come from the world above, descend down here into the world of matter, and help that spiritual spark within us reunite with the divine realm. And in doing so, some parts of the Savior sunk too deeply into the world of matter and couldn't rise back up to the spiritual world. And this was viewed as the God suffering or sacrificing himself in a certain way. And it's not difficult to see that this kind of thing just develops out of mystical speculation. And that was how many early Christian communities uh, digested the myth of Jesus. This is how they received the idea of him suffering or taking on flesh. But it didn't take long for many to take the next logical step, especially under the influence of the kingdom preaching movement to say that, well, what's stopping us from saying that this fleshly God actually lived on earth in the distant past? For one thing, that's a more immediate, more appealing belief, you know, easier for hoi polloi to get behind. And as an added bonus, it allows us to trace our authority back to a living person, like the philosophical schools are able to do. And at first, this figure was imagined to have lived once upon a time, and then eventually Mark or Mark's sources come along, and then we learn that it was during the time of Pontius Pilate. Now, placing it in that time period caused major chronological issues that were never resolved, but that was the process as it happened. Apologists say, why would anyone write a narrative about Jesus in the time of Pilate if there were so many people alive that could dispute it if it didn't happen? That's a weak argument on many, many levels. But my most immediate answer is that when the narrative of Jesus's life was first written, it was almost a hundred years later than the events that it purported to portray. And it was written well after the Jewish war had turned most of that region into something out of the book of Eli, if only temporarily. People at that late date, and at such a remove from the world of the early first century Judea, would have been in absolutely no position to dispute anything, nor would they have cared to, nor is that how ancient people usually approached information that didn't seem to make sense to them. You know, Even Origen, at multiple places in his writings, you know, and he's like one of the most intelligent people in that entire 500-year time period, even he doesn't seem to grasp very obvious explanations for things that we immediately pick up on. I would say that ancient people tended to overthink things, but that's not really 100% accurate. I think it's most accurate to say that they had difficulty with purely abstract thought, especially when they had to deal with a problem that required both concrete thinking and abstract thinking. It seems like it was almost impossible for them. They retreat immediately into their forms and their models and their heuristics. When we get back, we'll continue with the biography of Jesus. The next biographical fact that we get from Barnabas, Jesus suffered on the cross. Or alternately, he suffered on the wood or on the tree. And in the early Christian writings, those terms are used interchangeably. But it refers to crucifixion. In Plato's Republic, it's said that the righteous man must suffer and be crucified or impaled. And impaled is the same fate that some early Christian documents also apply to Jesus. Part of the variety with these terms is the fact that There was no standard way to do crucifixion. Like the way they do it in movies is based on artistic depictions. But in ancient Christianity, once the idea of the suffering and atoning death of the God was introduced, well, there was no more appropriate death to be applied to him than a shameful execution, the brutality and shame of a death by crucifixion was proverbial uh, across cultures at the time. Um, And this was construed also as being part of uh, his rejection um, by the enemies of the community that came to believe in this myth. But might the idea of the suffering God being crucified have been suggested by the Old Testament itself? Well, let's ask the author of Barnabas, quote, Spare my soul from the sword and affix my flesh with nails because a synagogue of wicked men has come upon me. End quote. Uh, that's a composite from Psalms 22 and 119 from which he gives a proof of Jesus' crucifixion. And no, the crucial statement that he makes, You know, no pun intended, it was necessary for Jesus to suffer on the wood because of this quote. You know, it isn't our God suffered on the cross in the flesh because many eyewitnesses saw or thought they saw his resurrection. Instead, it's our God suffered on the cross in the flesh because of what this psalm quote says. You know, the wording matters. And it's not even both. Like, for example, modern Christians would say, Jesus suffered on the cross, and we know this because of eyewitness accounts, and it was foreshadowed in the Psalms. Like, it being in the Psalms is like an added bonus for modern Christians. You know, like, oh, cool, if you're willing to accept it, you can optionally read the Old Testament as prophecy. But that's not how the earliest Christians thought, because they were reading these Psalms as oracles. And he gives us this quote from Isaiah 50. I've bared my back for stripes and my cheeks for smiting, but I've set my face as a solid rock. End quote. Recall Jesus being scourged before being let out. Recall him being struck in the face during his trial. Recall his silence during the trial. Barnabas says these things will come to pass when blood drips from a tree. He says that during a battle, Moses stretched out his hands, and as long as he did so, Israel prevailed. But when he let them drop, they were being killed again. The author says that these are stories that foretold the cross. Now, the important thing to remember is that some of these connections are pretty lame and obviously secondary, Like Moses stretching out his hands, Um, uh, it's difficult to believe that someone could have constructed an entire crucifixion scenario just out of that. But when it comes to the material from the Psalms and from Isaiah, we do find that all of the important details of the passion narrative are contained there in embryo. Keep in mind that the ancient Christians pulled these proofs out of every single book of the Old Testament, even by 200 AD, almost every chapter of every book in the Old Testament, and yet... Over half of all the Christian proof texts up to 200 A.D. are from Isaiah and from the Psalms. We'll get into why in a minute. Barnabas says that Jesus drank vinegar and gall when he was crucified. That's a detail that comes directly from the 69th Psalm, though the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Peter say wine mixed with myrrh. Uh, Matthew says wine mixed with gall. Barnabas is closer to the actual source of the Passion narrative than the Gospels of Mark, Peter, or Matthew. A synagogue of wicked men surrounds me, they surround me as bees around honey, and for my garments they cast lots. That's another composite quote from Psalm 22 and 118. He used that same line from Psalm 22 a second time, and recall that the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garments in the Passion narrative. Uh, Mark's gospel actually adds more details from Psalm 22 than Barnabas does. It seems like Barnabas is working off a shorter version of the Passion narrative or its source, but one whose wording was closer to the original language of the Psalms. Now about what I mentioned, why are the Psalms and Isaiah such an inexhaustible wellspring of facts about the earthly life of Jesus? Well, recall what I said in the last episode about reading Philo, getting intoxicated, reading any Old Testament passages that are constructed in the first or second person. It was difficult for these early sectarians to resist the urge to read them as oracles that were spoken by or about some heavenly figure, even though in the case of the Psalms, Many of them are ascribed to David in the superscription, and the statements in Isaiah are actually supposed to be spoken by Isaiah himself. But but think about it. For my garments they cast lots. They gave me gall and vinegar to drink. You are my son. This day I have begotten you. The spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. If you believe that the Son of God exists eternally in heaven— You're not far from speculating whether these passages were in fact spoken to or by or about him. And we know this because the early Christian literature is full of such speculations, and we can trace their development over time from simple to more complex, but at no time do we see any awkward period where they're trying to graft these speculations onto the figure of a mortal man and reconcile them with the details of his earthly life. And also keep in mind that the second century A.D. was a great age of popular religious superstition. It was the era in which, in the pagan world, the practice of Sortes virgilianae was developed. And this is where you would open Virgil's Aeneid at random. And the first line you saw was supposed to be speaking directly to you and predicting your future. Even emperors did this. And that's like seven-minute I Ching. Ancient people believed that random passages from old books were personally telling them secrets. Modern people do not. Ancient Christians did. Therefore, it's hard for us to put ourselves into their thought world. And really, the best way to understand something like this is to have an open mind and understand that religious expression can have a variety of forms. And Barnabas gives us another proof of the passion of Jesus from the Septuagint version of Isaiah. Woe to them, for they devised a wicked plot against themselves when they said, let's bind the righteous one, for he is displeasing to us. And this sounds not only like the conspiracy against Jesus and his arrest and trial, but also like the passage from Wisdom of Solomon that we discussed in episode 1, which is much more detailed and matches the account of Jesus even more closely. I should point out here, in keeping with what we just said about speculation, the Wisdom of Solomon was written for a Jewish community in Alexandria, sometime between the 1st century BC to the 1st century AD. And in this instance, the righteous man who suffers is intended to be a story of encouragement for that community in the face of persecution, encouraging them to persevere. But uh, if you stay awake long enough and uh, eat enough uh, flowers, I guess, it can eventually sound like it's describing the earthly life of the heavenly Messiah. Now, before I get to the part of this that may actually conflict with my theory, I want to cover the passage from this letter that is most dear to my heart. And the author has just said that Jesus is not the Son of Man, but the Son of God. And then he says, quote, Since they were going to say that the Messiah is David's son, David himself fearing and perceiving the error of the sinners, prophesies, "'The Lord said to my Lord, "'Sit at my right until I make your enemies "'a footstool for your feet.'" He's giving us a quote from Psalm 110, one of the fundamental texts of early Christianity. Like so many of these others, it seems to be describing a mysterious heavenly figure that's receiving lordship directly from God. Now Psalm 110 is actually about Simon Maccabeus, the first ruler of the Hasmonean dynasty. And this is a coronation psalm written in the 2nd century BC. The first letters of the psalm spell out an acrostic of his name. The Maccabees, the founders of the Hasmonean dynasty, had led a sort of chauvinistic revolt against the Seleucid Empire. And they took over the secular rule, even though the Bible had prophesied that descendants of David would rule the Jewish people in perpetuity. But they themselves were not descended from David. And this psalm was meant to give Simon heavenly credentials. But because its wording is so mysterious... It's one of these passages in the second person where we're not sure exactly who God is talking to. It was understood by Christians as a messianic passage, and Barnabas here is putting the brakes on his arguments about Jesus taking on flesh. He doesn't want his readers to take that belief too far and lapse into the Jewish Christian or the Ebionite belief that the Messiah Jesus there you know, must necessarily have been the descendant of David. This psalm is believed to be spoken from the mouth of David, and it features him referring to this mysterious being as his Lord. So the logic of these Christian groups who did not believe that the Messiah would be a son of David or a fleshly descendant of David was that he can't be descended from David because here David is addressing him almost like he's his superior. And the Gospel of Mark contains this same passage and this same argument. Jesus himself deploys it as an argument. Now, it's always been confusing for commentators on the New Testament, like if later Christians clearly believed that Jesus was descended from David, like Matthew and Luke have that in their genealogies of Jesus, then why would the Gospel writers put this anti-Son of David argument into the mouth of Jesus? Well, the Gospel of Mark gives us a clue, because before arguing against the Messianic Son of David, Jesus says point-blank that it's an argument used by the scribes, i.e., the Jewish religious experts, i.e., the Jews. He's disputing what the Gospel authors saw as the traditional Jewish idea that the Messiah will be a Davidic descendant. Barnabas says something similar they were going to say that the Messiah is David's son. And they refers, as always in Barnabas, to the Jews. However, unlike the Gospels, Barnabas makes the specific statement that Jesus is not the son of David. So essentially what he's doing here is saying, do believe that Jesus descended and took on flesh, but do not believe, as the so-called Jewish Christians, the Ebionites do, that Jesus was the son of a human and is thereby the descendant of David, and is thereby the Davidic Messiah. He's not. Needless to say, this conflicts with the gospel understanding of Jesus. The only thing the author here is really concerned with is that the heavenly pre-existent being had to take on flesh and suffer in order for these so-called prophecies to be validated. Now, the line on Jesus that we get from the mainstream theologians and the apologists is that this backwoods preacher clearly did not have Davidic descent, and the gospel authors, that is Matthew and Luke, constructed genealogies and scenarios like having him born in Bethlehem, connecting Joseph's lineage to David, Mary's lineage to David, in order to align this obscure earthly man with the messianic prophecies. But in Barnabas, we actually see the earlier version of the tale. Jesus is not and cannot be the Davidic Messiah because he was never even born as a human. Barnabas would not be concerned with connecting Joseph or Mary, you know, two people who he probably never even heard of. May not have yet even been invented by this point, you know, or connecting Jesus to Bethlehem or to the tribe of Judah or David's kingly line. Because the idea that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah was nonsensical to him. You know, it's just like they said in the movie it's like two plus two equals fish. now I want to touch on all the passages that might challenge my theory a bit and explore those here. I say all, but it's more like three passages in this 10,000-word document. But the first instance is when the author says the following. He just got done saying that it was necessary for Jesus to be manifested in flesh, quote, "...also so that he might fulfill the promise to the fathers, and while he was preparing the new people for himself, and while he was still on earth, to prove that after he's brought about the resurrection he will judge." Furthermore, although he was teaching Israel and doing such great wonders and signs, the result was not that they loved him dearly for his preaching, but when he chose his own apostles who were destined to preach his gospel, men who were sinful beyond measure, so that he might prove that he came not to call righteous but sinners. It was then that he revealed himself as God's Son. For if he hadn't come in flesh, how could men be saved by looking at him? They can't even gaze directly into the rays of the sun, even though it's a work of his hands and is destined to cease existing. Thus the Son of God came in flesh for this reason, that he might bring to summation the total of sins of those who persecuted his prophets to death. End quote. Uh, note there how he implies that Jesus, the obscure preacher from Galilee, uh, created the Son. Anyway, this is one of the times that he casually equates Jesus with God. But we heard in this passage about Jesus being on earth, teaching Israel, doing great wonders and signs, not being loved by Israel, and also choosing apostles. Now, it's very common in the Christian documents for different and sometimes conflicting traditions to be amalgamated in the same document. For example, Paul's letters depict Jesus descending from the heavens as a pre-existent being. And yet in one place, albeit in a very late passage, he's depicted at what we would now call the Last Supper on the night he was delivered up. I believe that at the time of the writing of Barnabas, the Gospel of Mark had recently been written and was making the rounds. And since the Old Testament prophecies pointed to the God taking on flesh— Being crucified, suffering at the hands of men, the wicked crowd of the synagogue who nailed his flesh, scourged his back with stripes, struck his face, cast lots for his garments. It's not too much of a stretch, if you imagine all this happening in the legendary past, to also believe that the God taught and conducted miracles. And that's an idea that's suggested further in Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, in passages that the Gospels also make heavy use of. But just like the author of Mark, who was dealing with several groups who had wildly disparate views of Jesus, and Mark just kind of hooked them together and forced them into his predetermined framework, Barnabas also does that here. It may be that he has some quote-unquote gospel Christians in his audience, and like I said, there's nothing in these statements here that specifically conflict with his views. It need not imply that Jesus was born as a human, that he uh, boiled a fish and got tired and had to sit down on a rock like he does in the Gospel of John he can safely meld some very basic traditions about an earthly Jesus into his overall apologetic. Um, and it's kind of awkward the way it sits on the page, but the main reason that the author had no problem with this tradition about Jesus being rejected by the Jews, you know, info that he was possibly getting either from Mark or someone who had read Mark is because once again, he found it in the Old Testament. Because in the very next line, he says, quote, "'So he submitted for this reason, "'for God says that the afflicting of his flesh "'came from them.'" When they smite their own shepherd, then the sheep of the flock will be lost, end quote. That second part is an alleged line from the book of Zechariah. It's another one of these mongrelized quotes that he does. As we see, the author is perfectly fine with Jesus descending to take on flesh, being manifested in that flesh, having that flesh suffer at the hands of the Jews because of this oracular statement from an ancient prophet. Now, this same line is used by Mark and Matthew, but in their telling, the prophecy is actually about the apostles deserting Jesus on the night of his arrest. Now, speaking of the apostles, Barnabas mentioned them there. Jesus chose the apostles from among men who were sinful beyond measure. And later, he says that in the red heifer ritual, the children who sprinkle the cleansing mixture symbolize the apostles, whom he says Jesus entrusted the authority to proclaim the gospel. There are 12 of them for a witness to the tribes, since there are 12 tribes of Israel. Now, first of all, it says he chose his apostles or emissaries. And that word in Greek, eklego, just means selected. It need not mean that he physically handpicked them like a bunch of kids choosing their team members for a pickup football game. It could, it could just mean designated, like in the sense of these being prophets who had received a revelation of him. But we know the gospel stories of Jesus handpicking his disciples, in which this same word is also used. So it's quite tempting to read that version of events into this passage. But that would be an assumption. Imagine a scenario in which Christianity began with the perorations of inspired prophets— In that scenario, these prophets who would receive the revelation could be said to have been chosen by Jesus. And then there would be a floating piece of tradition to the effect that Jesus chose apostles. And that piece of tradition ends up kind of blowing throughout the eastern Mediterranean, like one of those missing homework pages out of the Bart's Nightmare video game. And when the author of Mark comes across it, he chooses to frame it in its most literal sense. Jesus choosing apostles must mean that he handpicked them, like he was picking out vegetables at like the Hellenistic H-E-B. But let's go ahead and assume that the author of Barnabas understands Jesus choosing apostles to mean physically choosing them in an earthly sense. Well, at this point, I'd like to bring in an ancient document that possibly predates the Gospels. It's called The Preaching of Peter. It's a lost book, but fragments of it show up in Clement of Alexandria. And as we've seen, Clement is also one of the only Christians who ever quoted the letter of Barnabas. And the preaching of Peter has a very similar worldview to the letter of Barnabas. In this book, Jesus speaks to the twelve apostles. There's no knowledge of the myth of Judas or any other gospel story. Jesus entrusts them to preach to the world, to lead men away from what he says are the errors of both paganism and Judaism. Of course, he doesn't use those terms. And it has a line that reminds us very much of Barnabas when the apostles say that they opened up the books of the prophets and found parables, riddles, and predictions about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and, quote, all the other torments which the Jews inflicted on him, and when they took knowledge of these things, they believed in God through what had been written of him. End quote. If you believe that the God descended to earth, then the next logical step is to believe that he appointed surrogates to preach about him after his departure. There are passages in Isaiah that suggest this. Isaiah 2. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The 19th Psalm. There are no speeches or words in which their voices are not heard. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In the sun he has set his tent. He comes forth as a bridegroom out of his chamber, strong as a giant to run his course. Multiple Christian writers in the second century who know nothing of the biographical details of the apostles, who know nothing about the book called Acts of the Apostles, cite these verses and these legends, because the basic form of their myth indicated that Jesus sent apostles out into the world. They didn't learn it from eyewitness accounts or historical narratives, but from legends based on navel-gazing about the Old Testament. Now, where did the idea of apostles actually come from? First of all, it's a Jewish concept. It corresponds to the Hebrew term shalaya, or agent. And the first actual apostles, which means messengers, were actually the first prophets of Christianity who served as mediums for the heavenly Jesus. And when I say the first actual apostles, I mean those within Christianity. And this is something that went back to the old Simonian missionaries. An apostle was someone who had received the Holy Spirit and could prophesy about or in the name of the Lord Jesus who communicated from heaven. That is the sense that it's used in Paul's letters and in the Didache. I said that in Paul's church, apostle was almost like a military rank. Anyone who had these visions could be an apostle. Men, women, there were no cultural barriers. They could come from a pagan background, a Jewish background. I would almost compare them to like the lensmen, or like the Bene Gesserit. And as the idea happened to catch on that Jesus had an earthly ministry, the belief emerged in the mainstream church that there was also a specific college of apostles that he himself had appointed. The legend as it developed indicated 12 apostles for the number of the tribes of Israel. This idea obviously came not from the Pauline church, but from what we might call the mainstream Christianity. But the problem was there were really only four or five famous apostles in their legendary tradition. So, The gospel writers had to frankly make up the other eight names, but in documents like the preaching of Peter and the letter of Barnabas, we see this legend of the 12 in kind of its earliest beginnings. And if you notice, both of them start from the same premises and share some of the same assumptions, but they freely make up certain details. Like with Barnabas, he decided that, well, Jesus picked the worst of the worst sinners. Like he picked the kind of guys who say, surround yourself with positive people or like he picked the kind of guys who flash their high beams when they're sitting behind you in traffic, or he picked people who, whenever you start a sentence with the words "let's talk about," will immediately sing the first few bars of "Let's Talk About Sex" by Salt and Peppa—just the worst sinners imaginable. But I mean, no real precedent for this in the Gospels. I mean, Levi or Matthew is a tax collector, which is equated with sinners in the literature. But uh, I don't know, a poor fisherman. Can we really say that they're the worst sinners? guy's are trying to make a living. You know, it's interesting that Celsus, who writes against Christianity in 180 AD, mentions this same thing. And Origen kind of makes fun of him and says like, you know, you must've got that from the dumbass letter of Barnabas or something, like literally. But the point is that these are just floating legends. They're malleable and protean. The history of the apostles that the book of Acts gives us is cut and dry. It's the apostles are these specific people these are the qualifications to be an apostle. Here's where they went. Here's what they said. Here's what they did. That type of book needed to be written precisely because of the fact that people like Barnabas or the author of the preaching of Peter or Justin Martyr could have such wildly conflicting views of the apostles, like let alone Paul's letters, to which the idea of apostles in those letters versus acts of the apostles are like the South Pole ends of two magnets that can never touch. The simplest explanation for this mention of apostles this depiction in Barnabas is that here we are at the beginning of the life of that myth, or maybe in its second stage, and it hasn't yet been domesticated, and in fact, it hasn't even been fully hashed out. And it's difficult to see this as being based on any historical memory. And by the way, consider that this book was written in 130 AD. Why on earth are the traditions about the apostles so disparate from the New Testament? Why are they so embryonic still at this late date? And if you do fall in with the group that sees this letter as being written somewhat earlier, like 95 to 100 AD, like we'll talk about shortly, that's even worse. Because at that point, you're supposedly even closer to the supposedly historical apostles. So how can the details be so far from the mark? How can they conflict so widely? How are they so sparse compared to narratives that should already have been written down and disseminated throughout the Christian world? Such passages as this in Barnabas about the apostles, to me, are like a smoking gun that the history of the apostles— was written much later in Christian history, and therefore cannot be based on historical reminiscences. And as we go forward through the coming months, we'll find a whole lot more examples of stuff like this. And it won't do to say that, well, the author is being allegorical. Like, that, that pertains to his Old Testament treatment. But, I mean, there's no reason for him to do so when it comes to what we might consider New Testament or traditional material. And, and lastly, I want to note that unlike in the Gospels and all later Christian documents— The apostles here are not brought in as witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, which is actually their primary role in later Christian history, you know that and actually spreading Christianity. But the requirement as it developed was that to be considered an apostle, they had to be with Jesus from the time he was, quote, taken up. Also, Barnabas says that Jesus was destined to bring us life and forgive our sins so that he could fulfill his role as the type of Isaac whom Abraham placed on the altar. Also, Jesus is foreshadowed by Joshua, the Old Testament hero. Moses gave his right-hand man the name Joshua, which Jesus is the Greek version of that name. A lot of early Christians point out that Moses changed his lieutenant's name to Joshua as a sign of Jesus, but I believe that the very name Jesus was a sign to the Savior in the first place because of the myth of the prophet Joshua as a heavenly Messiah, like we see in the Sibylline Oracles and in the Samaritan Mythology. And the Sibylline oracles are from the first century, at least that passage that mentions Joshua is. But I want to close this section with a line that I feel sums up everything I've been saying. The author says that he and other Christians celebrate the eighth day, which is Sunday. Let's let him again explain why. And he says they celebrate it because it is, quote, The day in which Jesus rose from the dead, and he, after he was manifested, ascended into the heavens, end quote. This sounds like the most primitive form of the ascension myth that we have access to. He rose from the dead. He was manifested. There's that word again. He ascended into the heavens. It sounds like a classic theophany or apotheosis. It sounds, in fact, like a creedal statement, the kind of thing that a historical narrative is built out of, not something that's applied to an existing historical narrative or person. The earliest form of the myth— one that's far simpler than a complicated tale of a human man being buried in a rock tomb that was later found empty and a resurrection appearance to two or three or 11 people hours or days after that. It's often said that the more complicated a Christian story is, the later it is. And we see that the Gospel of John has a very in-depth resurrection story. I think Luke and Acts have like the longest and most complex one. Matthews is fairly concise. You know, Mark's is almost non-existent, but I mean, Mark had his own fish to fry, no pun intended, with that uh, empty tomb story. But if we we're going by the hypothesis that the simplest story is the earliest form of the myth, it can't get any simpler than Barnabas. I mean, this is almost elegant. Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day. He was manifested. He ascended. The end. The Jesus figure in Barnabas is a development of the Gnostic savior myth after the idea of the God descending to earth and taking on a human body had become the popular belief that was crowding out all the earlier beliefs. And just like human beings do, and we see this a lot in politics, for example, they often pretend that even though their opinion has clearly changed, they insist that, no, actually, I've been saying the same thing the whole time. And the author of Barnabas, speaking to a community that believed first and foremost in a heavenly Jesus, and we know that because he says at the very beginning of the letter that they communicate with Jesus through the pneumatic gift that he's poured on them, He, speaking to this church, is taking on the task of proving to them that the God also needed to descend and take on flesh and suffer at the hands of men for his saving act to be viable. And this is supposed to be the thing that we've been believing all along. Um, Now, the last thing I'll say on this is that we need not read this as an actual letter intended to persuade. More than likely, the clerics of this church wrote the letter as a way to legitimate their views. They can write it, slip it into their library, And next time there's any controversy, like one of their members doesn't believe this stuff, they can stroll down to the library and produce this authoritative document. You know, after all, it's in writing and to the ancient person's mind, that means it's like 85% on its way to being indisputably true. And we'll be back after this word. Reading now from the letter of Barnabas. He says, Behold, those who tore down this temple will themselves rebuild it. It's happening, for because of their fighting and the fact that they were waging war, it was torn down by the enemies. And now the very servants of the enemies will rebuild it themselves. Again, it was made clear that the city and the temple and the people of Israel were destined to be abandoned, because the writing says, It shall be at the end of days that the Lord will abandon the sheep of the pasture and the sheepfold, and their watchtower to destruction. That was a reading from chapter 16 of the letter of Barnabas. He provided two scripture quotes there, and no one has ever been able to identify what books he's quoting. They sound somewhat similar to concepts from the books of Enoch and Tobit, but I think it's probable that whatever he's quoting, it's a Jewish writing or writings that were written after 70 AD in the style of the Old Testament, but looking back on the war of 70 AD. And, but those, these could be books referencing the destruction of the first temple. That is when the Babylonians uh, captured Jerusalem in 587 B.C. But certainly uh, Barnabas is saying here in no uncertain terms that the second temple, the one destroyed in 70 A.D., has been destroyed in the recent past. And it's this reason that my date for the letter of Barnabas is, in fact, very close to what the traditional mainstream theologians assign it. You know, if anything, my date is even a little earlier than they usually put it, whereas my dates are usually much later. But the fact that I'm so close to the mainstream theologians isn't a coincidence, because here, in this passage, Barnabas is one of only a tiny handful of early Christian writings that give a direct reference to an actual, dateable event. Not until Justin Martyr, who addresses his book to a named emperor, who mentions a recent governor of Egypt, who mentions the death of one of Hadrian's courtiers, not until then, like in the 150s, do Christian documents start providing enough information to where we can assign them dates? And that's a slow process as well. Uh, we still have dating issues even into the 4th century. But on some early writings like the Epistula Apostolorum, which we're going to have to start calling the EA on this show, some authors like that will slip and say like that the end of the world will come 150 years after the death of Jesus. So we know that that had to be written at the very latest before 190 or so, allowing for the fact that not every writer back then really had a firm grasp of chronology. And you see it here with Barnabas referencing the destruction of the temple. So we shouldn't give the theologians too much credit for being able to date this letter more reasonably. The author essentially did most of the work for them. With that said, we'll go over some dates for the letter. The author says the temple will be rebuilt, and this tends to get translated into English in weird and differing ways, but I think Robert Kraft gives the most sensible translation, which is, "...the servants of the enemies will rebuild the temple." Now, after 70 AD, the Romans captured Jerusalem, and the temple was, for the most part, destroyed. There's a question as to what extent Jerusalem was destroyed, or whether or not the temple sacrifices actually still continued on the site of its ruins, but that's a whole other debate. But anyway, that situation continued for decades, until the reign of Hadrian, who came to power as Roman emperor in 117 AD. Now, the sources are very confused as to the sequence of events that happened next, but Hadrian seems to have either planned to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem or planned to construct a new pagan city and pagan temple on the site. And those ancient sources who say that he wanted to build the pagan temple also agree that that was the event that triggered the great Bar Kokhba rebellion from 132 to 135 AD, the third Roman Jewish war that was kind of the final showdown between the Romans and the Jews. And It's this event that essentially created Christianity as a distinct faith. You know, the fallout from this war triggered all kinds of reactions, and not least of which was that Christians decided once and for all to separate themselves formally from mainstream Jews. Justin Martyr, writing 20 years after this war, claims that Bar Kokhba actually persecuted Christians during the war. He controlled a large portion of Judea for a while with his uh, Montagnard army of rebels. But the Romans won the war, for which the sources tend to give ridiculous death tolls, like Cassius Dio says that 580,000 people died, which is absurd on its face, but it was indeed heavily destructive, as the archaeological evidence shows. And after this, Hadrian did indeed get to build his pagan city, Ilia, on the ruins of Jerusalem. And a temple to Jupiter was built on the site of the Temple Mount, according to some sources. And it's this temple, the Temple to Jupiter, that I and many mainstream scholars believe is the temple that Barnabas refers to when he says that now the servants of the enemy will rebuild it. That new pagan temple was destroyed under the Byzantine Empire, but even into the time of the Arab conquest, people were still referring to Jerusalem as Aylia. And the latest possible date for this letter is the completion of the Temple of Jupiter in Ilia. And after that event, the statement in the letter no longer makes any sense. There are two clusters of dates assigned by theologians to this letter. And I would say about 75% or more place the writing of this letter around the year 130. But there's another cluster around the years 95 to 100 AD. And now I'm going to tell you a secret about Christian scholarship. When you don't know exactly when one of these early Christian documents was written, a safe place to stick it is 95 to 100 AD. I swear that date range comes up so often with absolutely no evidence that it's clear that it's just a dumping ground because it's not too late, not too early. First Clement gets put there. The Didache gets put there. Those John letters, first, second, third John, get put there. Uh, 95 to 100 is a common date to give to John's gospel. Uh, People have started putting Acts of the Apostles there lately because they realize that it's late, but they have like a phobia about putting it in the second century. A lot of the more liberal scholars enjoy putting the gospel of Mark there, like I said, in episode four. What else? Uh, First Peter, it's a safe place to stick first Peter. I've seen the gospel of Peter get stuck there. And of course, our friend Barnabas gets shoved in there sometimes. Now, another reason why they pick this cowardly 95 to 100 date a lot of times is because the Roman emperor Domitian supposedly persecuted Christians. Uh, He did not, but we'll cover that at some point. Uh, And his reign ended in 96 AD. A lot of these books mention persecution. So by putting it 95 to 100, you get the benefit of having an external event to refer to, which is the supposed persecution. And also, like I said, not too late, not too early. Another rather insidious reason as to why some theologians put Barnabas early, and if you take away nothing else from this section, take away this, they note that it doesn't have a high level of familiarity with the written Gospels, and they quote-unquote know that the Gospels were written between 70 and 90 AD. But Barnabas clearly isn't aware of them, or it's barely aware of them. And if Barnabas was written in 130, well, that cannot stand. This cannot stand, this uh, aggression against uh, the traditional timeline. If Barnabas was written in one thirty, and Mark and Matthew were written a generation earlier, then how is it that Barnabas doesn't know them and quote extensively from them? So instead of actually answering that question, they respond by declaring that, well, Barnabas therefore has to be early, and they stash it in this dumping ground of 95 to 100. Not too early, but not too late. So now we don't have to answer those uncomfortable questions about why he's so late and doesn't use the Gospels. You know, this is how Christian documents are dated. A questionably dated document is used to date another equally questionably dated document. And this is actually like what Helmut Kester and John Dominic Crossan do with the letter of Barnabas. But if we we were talking right now about secular documents, say the writings of Achilles Tatius or something, historians would have no problem saying, well, we don't know when these novels are dated. Could be 150, could be 250. All we know is our earliest copy is from 250. And then they move on. Uh, They hope for an archeological discovery that might give better info, but if they don't get it, they don't sweat it too much. I mean, we've lost a lot of stuff from the ancient world. It's likely we'll never learn about the origins of many of these books, but for Christianity, this cannot stand. Uh, As a religion, it's too important to too many people. Uh, If it's not too delicate to say, it makes too many people too much money, you know, jobs, 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 and there's really no right or wrong answer with a lot of this stuff also. I mean, if a physicist is wrong, then the super collider explodes and kills 80 people. Uh, If a Christian theologian is wrong about the date of Barnabas, no one gives a shit. So put it early, put it shortly after the Gospels, which we also put unreasonably early, and that way everyone feels better, everyone's more comfortable. Anyway, most theologians very reasonably put Barnabas at about 130, like I said. About a quarter of them put it from 95 to 100. Sometimes you get the odd psycho trying to put it in the 70s AD. Um, Dr. Kraft, our law-giving angel for this episode, kind of hedges, but he says that if it's between 70 and 130, it's much closer to 130. St. Gordon put it at 130, Richard Carrier, 131 to 132, uh, St. Edwin, 132. As usual, I think he has the correct reading here. Dr. Harnack from the 19th century, 130 to 131. That surprises me. Usually, Harnack never found an early date that he didn't love. Like a Christian book could literally say, I was written in 150 A.D., and he'd be like, I don't know, I'm thinking uh, 60 to 70. Uh. You know, I have a giant list of every early Christian writing, and under each one are the dates that the theologians assign to them. Whenever I read a new book where they mention the date, I add it to the list. I only pick some of the more notable ones to talk about on the show. And if you can't tell by now, the dating of these documents is the main thing, and honestly probably the only thing I care about. That, more than anything else, was the genesis of Born in the Second Century, Learning about all this other stuff was only necessary to get at the dates of these writings. I want to briefly mention the location of writing. I hinted in the summary that I believe that this letter is intended for an audience in a big city, and it's pretty much everyone's universal opinion that this letter originated in Egypt, specifically Alexandria. And the reason given is that it's mainly Christians who have lived in Egypt that ever end up quoting the letter in the early centuries, which I think is a relatively strong argument. But the next argument they give is actually kind of baffling to me, Because they say that because the author uses the allegorical reading of scripture and that that was highly popular in Alexandria, that therefore it may have been written in Alexandria. I think that's like saying that because baseball was popular in Japan, that baseball was therefore invented in Japan. I hinted somewhat at travel times in the Roman Empire in my Mark episode, and traveling in the Roman Empire did not take months to get from point A to point B. You could skate around these Mediterranean cities in a matter of days or weeks, depending on the season, And a guy like Barnabas could have learned the allegorical method in Alexandria, but just written somewhere else. Um, I'm agnostic on the place, but I lean towards Alexandria based on the fact that only the later Alexandrian Christians ever seem to be familiar with it. My own date for the letter of Barnabas is 125 to 135. And just to give some perspective, this would put it at a few years after the Gospel of Mark, roughly contemporary with the original version of the Gospel of Peter, a few years before the Gospel of Matthew, and a few years before the Didache. I place the document in history mainly by its discussion of the temple being rebuilt, which I would identify as the pagan temple at Ilia. Like the Gospel of Mark from five years earlier, this author still holds to the opinion that Jesus is not of Davidic descent. And what this means is that the more Jewish strands of Christianity have not yet merged with the more Greek or Hellenistic strands. Barnabas is more on the Greek side of the equation. Like the Gospel of Peter, which was written around the same time, it relies heavily on the Old Testament for its details, not only about Jesus' death, but also his ministry and the ministry of the apostles. He has access to a special quote that's found only in the gospel of Matthew. Many are called, but few are chosen. And this is one of Matthew's unique lines that he added to the gospel. And Barnabas seems to have had access to the book or scroll of Jesus's sayings that was used by Matthew and added to that gospel. Barnabas quotes it using the formula, it is written. And that to me indicates that there were books of Jesus's sayings floating around, kind of like the Egerton papyrus. And they had just these standalone quotes and sayings, kind of like the Gospel of Thomas. It's like the Little Red Book, but instead of uh, hearing about how we should destroy the roots of ultra-democracy in the sphere of theory, uh, we hear about how we should make a Sabbath into a Sabbath, or how we can get helpful advice on how to live from a kid that's seven days old, or how Jesus is leaving James the just in charge. So like, if we have any Christianity-related questions or we need to pick up a new access card, we, we have to go to him. Those are all from the Gospel of Thomas. Barnabas does not structure his passion narrative along the same lines as the Gospel of Mark does. The Gospel of Mark actually figured out the formula. You know, how do you condense all these Psalms quotes, these Isaiah quotes, into a coherent narrative? Well, semi-coherent anyway. The Gospel of Peter does both. It takes from the Old Testament independently, like Barnabas does. But the Gospel of Peter has access to some source about the passion narrative that presented it as like a coherent sequence of events, which the letter of Barnabas does not. The term Christian or Christianity is never used in Barnabas. The word Christianity, by the way, or Christianismos, is usually like a smoking gun for a document being very late, almost guarantees late second century and later. Like a first century or early second century author using the term Christianity would be like those same authors, including a line where Jesus says that he really doesn't like Bazooka Joe gum, but he just buys it for the comics. But Christian is never used in Barnabas either. The Christians are instead called brethren, saints, those who have been called, the people who God prepared. I I said that the religion still appears to be in its infancy as late as the second century, and this is the kind of thing that I meant. Like this language from Barnabas where he's struggling to even come up with names for the people that he's dealing with. It literally seems like Christianity was just invented like 15 years before this. And in the extremely unlikely chance that you side with the very earliest date this could have been written which is 70 AD, you still have to reckon with the fact that this religion doesn't have a name. Its people don't have a name. It's a sect which sees itself in some way associated with Judaism, but not really because at the same time they have all these problems with them. It seems, in fact, like a mysticizing pagan sect that is trying to do like a leveraged buyout of the Jewish scriptures, like some private equity firm doing a corporate raid. We're going to look now at some more internal evidence for dating the letter, and one of the parts of this letter that's been heavily investigated is the so-called apocalyptic section in chapter 4. In this section, the author first of all says that we're living in the last times, but he doesn't go into too much detail on that. He mentions that the final stumbling block is at hand, and what he most likely means is the rebuilding of the temple that we talked about. He quotes from what is allegedly the book of Daniel, something that sounds a lot like Daniel 7, where he talks about seeing four apocalyptic beasts. According to Daniel, the fourth beast had teeth of iron, it was terrible, exceedingly strong, it had ten horns, and another little horn rises up out of their midst and roots out three of the other horns. Barnabas borrows this imagery and further adds, in the same way Daniel does, that the ten horns symbolize ten kingdoms. Now most sane people believe that at the time Daniel was written, which was in the precise year of 164 BC, that the fourth beast symbolized the Greek Empire, specifically the Seleucid Empire. The successor state that emerged after Alexander's conquest. And the ten horns symbolize the Seleucid kings between Seleucos Nikator, the founder of the empire, and the king in the time of Daniel, which was Antiochos Epiphanes, who is like the villain of the book of Daniel, you know, the John Baptist Emmanuel Zorg, if you will. Now, as with pretty much any apocalypse, they give clear and concise details, but those details are impossible to match up with any known facts of history. Like Antiochus is supposed to be the 10th out of the 10 horns, but technically there had only been eight Seleucid kings. So you'd have to include like Alexander and one other person in the lineage. And then like the three horns that he's supposed to uprooted are a series of pretenders that he had to vanquish. But it's really a lost cause to get these apocalypses to line up properly with history. Like in the book of Revelation, there's a seven headed beast, which is supposed to symbolize the Roman emperors up to that time. Except for the fact that there had been 11 emperors to that point. And then it's like, okay, do you include Julius Caesar in that or not? And then, then there was the year 69 when there were four emperors. So allegedly you have to subtract one or more of those. And then it implies that he's counting Nero twice because there was a folk legend that Nero would rise from the dead. And then you have to ask yourself like, okay, should we even be reading these as Roman emperors? It could mean some other thing. And the author really doesn't help when he prefaces all this by saying that you need a mind with wisdom to understand this parable. And it's like instead of saying that, could you just like give us a hint? Um, Or in the Ascension of Isaiah, it says that Nero would rule for 3.65 years, but in actual history, he ruled for 14 years. But then you have to understand that he's talking about the reanimated Nero that rose from the dead. And then you reflect that the 3.65 years is actually the same exact time span that Daniel gives for the reign of Antiochus. And all these apocalypses are based on Daniel in some way. All this to say, trying to figure out what these writers are talking about is really a lost cause if you're trying to extract actual history out of it. The main reason for reading and studying them is just to get a sense of the tropes that they use. Now, in the time of Barnabas, the Greek Empire had been superseded by the Romans. And so from that time, and for centuries after that, and to this day, in some Christian denominations, uh, the fourth beast is seen as symbolizing the Roman Empire, and Barnabas is in that tradition. Now, for this, I analyzed a paper by L.W. Barnard called The Date of the Epistle Barnabas from 1958. We can't rule out the possibility that uh, this man, in fact, changed his name to Barnard as a kind of a psychological technique to get us to take his opinions about, you know, the similar-sounding Barnabas more seriously. But at any rate, his view on this is as good a summary as any. And he says that the fourth beast in Barnabas symbolizes Rome, and there are three ways of looking at the horns. The tenth horn could either be Vespasian, with the little horn being zombie Nero, and he says that that can't be correct because it would put the letter too early— The second view is that the little horn is the Emperor Nerva, which he thinks is just a weird reading, because it elevates Nerva to this exalted position when he was just like a caretaker emperor that ruled for two years, basically on behalf of the Senate. And the third and most appropriate view is that the little horn is Zombie Nero, and Zombie Nero will uproot the three horns of Nerva, Trajan, and Hadrian, and he thinks this is the correct view, and it would allow us to put Barnabas in its traditional 130-date But it's my position on this show that we will always try to avoid dating a document using apocalyptic material whenever possible. Because not only are the apocalyptic writers relying more so on tropes than on actual history, but even the early Christians were suspicious about reading too much into an apocalypse. Friend of the show Irenaeus, who loved the book of Revelation, nonetheless makes fun of people who try to come up with a meaning for the number 666. And he says, quote, it's more certain and less hazardous to just await the fulfillment of the actual prophecy than to make conjectures and cast around for any name that presents itself, because there are many names that can be found that match this number, and all the while the same question will remain unsolved after all. End quote. And we'll be back after this word. We'll talk now about the literary evidence for the letter of Barnabas. Who's the first to quote it, and how was it received by Christians in the first few centuries? There's a scene in the movie Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is about a beauty pageant, and the villain of the movie is trying to get the protagonist, one of the contestants, disqualified. She has the judges ask her to name and spell every U.S. state in alphabetical order, and she actually does it. And it cuts to her kind of finishing up, and she's spelling the names of those last few states. And the judges are just kind of staring at her board with, like, this glazed-over look for obvious reasons. Yet there's one guy kind of in the background. He's played by Will Sasso, who's delighted at her performance for some reason. Like, he's grinning and bobbing his head up and down excitedly as she spells out these states. Like, he can't get enough of it for some reason. I bring this up because all the early Christians who come into contact with this letter seem to hate it. Except for one— Clement of Alexandria, and he absolutely loves this letter. He's like the one Christian that's bobbing his head. He's like Will Sasso, like he can't get enough of it. And he quotes it more than he quotes some of the actual New Testament documents. He's from the end of the second century. Now he, in his massive book, the Stromata, quotes this document eight times. And that's the amount of times that he quotes it by name. He borrows from it in a bunch of other places without attribution. When he does attribute it, he says in no uncertain terms that it's the letter of Barnabas and it's by the apostle Barnabas. He quotes the part about the spiritual temple. He quotes the mystical reading of the first psalm. He agrees with Barnabas on the virtues that God gives us. He says that Barnabas speaks Gnostically, which is about the highest compliment that he can give someone. He approvingly cites Barnabas' amazing statements about animals and the food laws. And I dwell on this so much to convey the very important truth that, in Clement's mind, this book is part of the New Testament. He makes no distinction. He doesn't indicate that this document is in any way lesser or less legitimate It's the Apostle Barnabas, and here's some truths that he has to tell us. Now in the very next generation after him, we get Origen. Origen knows the letter, and he calls it the general epistle of Barnabas. But he he has a tendency to be more uncomfortable with the non-New Testament writings than Clement was. I mean, there wasn't a strictly defined canon at this time, but uh, there was a tradition of accepted books, and Barnabas was not one of them by that point. Like, he mocks Celsus for using the letter of Barnabas. Like, he treats it like Celsus was making an argument about, like, Paul Atreides, but basing it on, like, one of the Dune follow-up novels rather than Dune itself. And, and that, that trend kind of continues. In the fourth century, Eusebius calls it a rejected writing. He places it in the same category as the Acts of Paul and Thecla and the so-called shepherd, as he says, meaning the shepherd of Hermas, um, the Apocalypse of Peter. Uh, he also manages to sneak the book of Revelation in there, too. Uh, It's a book that he hates, and he's trying to pretend that a majority of other Christians hate it too, which was not the case. Jerome, coming after Eusebius, uh, knows the letter, says that it's written by the Apostle Barnabas. He doesn't consider it canonical. Uh, We already heard from his dumbass. Now, in the Western church, the writing is never cited by name. In fact, Tertullian in North Africa at the beginning of the 3rd century knows a letter of Barnabas. But in his mind, that refers to the letter to the Hebrews— Irenaeus and Justin may have had access to it, I mean they use similar arguments from the Jewish Bible, but like I said, these could have come from a common source, something called a testimonia book. And theologians like Rendell Harris and Marcel Simon have talked about these, and what these were were like little tracts that would just contain like lists of Christian arguments based on verses from the Old Testament, and their object seems to be to try to convert Jews, basically. And Jews themselves used to use similar books to try to convince pagans. Today we discuss the view of Jesus in the letter of Barnabas and also the date of the letter. Now, this view of Jesus, that he's preexistent, a heavenly being, spoken of in terms of a mystery God, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and married to your mother, this view has been demonstrated not to derive from any kind of oral or written tradition other than mystical speculation based on passages from the Jewish scriptures. We continue our examinations of the canonical and apocryphal works of early Christianity We've demonstrated that this late document describes a primitive level of development in early Christianity, and in fact a primitive view of Jesus, despite being written a hundred years after the alleged crucifixion. This was shown in the biography of Jesus that we related here, and we provided support for the late date of the letter that's shared in this case by the mainstream. May we all pause and reflect whether a late date for Christianity itself does not present itself as the best explanation for the text that we have here. In the name of St. Candida, we declare this document late and spurious, but for once, we are in agreement with the theologians when we do so. Thank you for listening. Join us next time. This criticism is ended. Go in peace. What other stories of mythology do you think of as historical reality?